You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Welcome to The Magnet Podcast. I am Lewis Kornfeld. Hello, this is Ed Herbstman. Lewis Kornfeld is not here. He's not interviewing anyone. Instead, I've hijacked this podcast to bring you some gems worth your time, and I hope you love it. Actually, Lewis is on vacation. I wanted to share these pieces for a while, so perfect timing. You're going to hear some things that are funny, heartbreaking, silly, smart, and all of the above at the same time. These pieces are diverse, but they all have one thing in common. They all come from performers at Magnet Theater. Magnet's a place where people inspire and support each other on stage and off. And I am honored to be a part of it. And thank you to all our listeners. I think you're going to enjoy this show. Please leave a comment on iTunes. Please subscribe. Now, let's start. And welcome back to Conspiracy Theory, the only show that connects the dots. Unless, of course, that's what they secretly want us to do. Continuing with open phones, next caller is Name Withheld from somewhere in New Jersey. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I have been listening to your conversation about the Iran nuclear agreement, and I think it's really important to realize that Bin Laden, Edward Snowden, Bush, Saudi Arabia, the Clinton Foundation, at Yahoo, Malaysian Airlines, Obama, Keystone, Pipeline, Edward Snowden, self-driving cars, fracking. Okay, very interesting take. Lot to think about. Next caller, Pat from Iowa City, Nebraska. You're on Conspiracy Theory. Yeah, hi. If, if I could just piggyback on the last caller, I think she made some good points, but it's also important to remember Edward Snowden, Benghazi Electoral College, the Eurozone, Edward Snowden. Okay, Pat. And the New England Patriots. Thanks for your call. Up next is Dimitri calling in from the dumpster area behind a big box store somewhere outside of Atlanta. You're on Conspiracy Theory, Dimitri. Yeah, hi. Uh, what happened to the other host of this show? Why is nobody talking about that? And thank you, Dimitri. Also, Edward Snowden. And that'll wrap it up for Open Phones. Up next, is Throwback Thursday actually a government trick to get us to digitize our old analog images? But first, let's take a quick break so we can receive money from giant corporations in exchange for access to our audience so they can use manipulative messages to control your behavior. Stay with us. That was Peter Gross, Hannah Chase, Christian Palak, and J.P. Manu. All very funny people. Thank you for doing that, guys. That was very fun to put together. Next up is an amazing story told by a wonderful person who also wrote it, Rachel Hamilton. A lot of you know Rachel from teaching at Magnet and uh, Camp Magnet. Camp Magnet was her idea. And she made it happen the first year, and we've kind of taken it and made it happen each successive year as she has gone and moved away to Sausalito, California, where, did I say that right, Sausalito? I'm going to say it's Sausalito, California. Lucky people who get to study with Rachel Hamilton. She is reliably, consistently wise and kind and funny and smart and very present. This is Rachel Hamilton from Bummers. When considering the notion of convenience, I thought first about Lunchables and how they might just be the end of civilization. <laughs> I thought about that app that can get you freshly baked cookies and milk in under 45 minutes anywhere in San Francisco. And then somewhat inconveniently, I thought about my father. 
my father, who bowed out of parenting because it was not convenient. My father, who my psyche has shelved in the outskirts of my consciousness, where I don't risk running into him all that often. I've gotten used to not thinking about him, because not thinking about him, about the relationship we've never had, is just safer. If I think about him, I risk stumbling into the reservoir of unfelt sadness, loss, and anger about having such a shitty father that I assume lives somewhere in the deep suburbs of my psyche. I mean, those feelings have to be somewhere, right? My dad remains mostly a mystery to me, despite my quest, mostly a cognitive, not emotional quest, to make some kind of sense of him and his choices. My father, not a paternal bone in his body, near as I can tell, not much of an emotional life at all, for that matter. He's like a brain on a stick, <laughs> sharp as fuck, <laughs> brilliant even, but emotionally underdeveloped in the extreme. Lately, I've taken to describing him to others and to myself as spectrumy. <laughs> I didn't grow up with my dad. My mom never really talked about him, and I didn't ask many questions. Maybe I thought I wasn't allowed to. I'm not sure. But for whatever reason, I just fell in line with our family culture of not talking about the huge elephant taking a dump in the middle of our sunken living room. <laughs> my absent dad. <laughs> there was this one magazine in our house, kept in the same bookshelf with our one photo album. It was a New York magazine with my dad on the cover. Well, a clay model of my dad on the cover. With a giant head and a tiny body, like the caricatures you can get at the beach boardwalk or at amusement parks where they draw you with a giant head and you're engaged in one of your, one of your hobbies. <laughs> like that, only uh, my dad was made out of clay. And instead of holding a tennis racket or playing the violin, he was looking down at a small clay model of the New York skyline. The date on the magazine is November 1st, 1971. Right under the date is the price, 40 cents. And below that, next to my father's oversized clay head, there are big black letters that read, 13 months ago, this Iowa dude arrived in New York City. By January, he may be running it. 13 months before November 1st, 1971, would have been October 1st, 1970. I was born in 1969 on May 31st. Oh. According to my timeline forensics, my dad and I lived under the same roof for no more than 16 months. And then he left for this killer job that he had to take. When the mayor of New York City handpicks you to be his budget director at age 32, you don't say no. Even if it means leaving your wife and your three small children, my brother and sister are twins born two years before me, you go. The article inside New York Magazine from November 1st, 1971 is entitled, Can a Kid from New York, uh, Can a Kid from Iowa Manage New York? As a kid, this magazine fascinated me. It served as, as this breadcrumb on the trail of my missing father. It was also evidence that my father must be super famous and important. <laughs> and they didn't make clay models out of just any dad. <laughs> so wherever he was, whatever he was doing, it was clearly super significant. And being that he was that famous and important, they clearly needed him more than we did, whoever they were, and no matter how fucked up we were, in his absence. Just a few years ago, through the magic of Google, 
that article has re-entered my awareness. One day it just popped back into my consciousness, this forgotten touchstone from my childhood, and with a few keystrokes, I was reading the article on my laptop and have since been fascinated with it all over again. 45 years later, it remains the most comprehensive close-up account that I have about my mysterious, weirdo, deeply spectrum-y father. <laughs> I owe a huge debt of gratitude to the New York Magazine reporter who wrote the profile of my father, a Mr. Richard Reeves, a biographical piece introducing the new superstar to the residents of New York, and unbeknownst to Mr. Reeves, to his youngest daughter. Thank you, Mr. Reeves for your, wildly, your take on my wildly enigmatic father. When I was a kid, I mostly loved the cover. The article itself was long and boring, with the exception of the parts about how brilliant my dad was. <laughs> Even in New York, Mr. Reeves writes, which has seen just about everything, it's the ultimate bright young man story. But then at age 32, Ed Hamilton is quite a young man, reading all the Russian novelists before he was 12, and continually being described as about the smartest man I've ever met by men as disparate as Nelson Rockefeller and Frank Mankiewicz. I'd show the magazine to my friends with pride. Look at this. He has an important job in New York, which is why he's not here. I was simultaneously justifying his absence and bragging. <coughs> Yeah, your dad might remember your birthday, but I'm pretty sure he's not on the cover of a magazine made out of clay. <laughs> what I didn't appreciate then, but very much appreciate now, are the parts of the article that confirm what a weirdo he was, slash, is. Mr. Richard Reeves writes, You can listen to him speak brilliantly on the problems of the city for five hours and then realize that he has never once mentioned people. <laughs> Hamilton is particularly brilliant at reducing any situation or problem to its essential components, outlining options for action and their consequences, and all that in structured paragraphs quickly and without passion, some would say without compassion. <laughs> People have been something of a problem for Hamilton. Or perhaps it would be more precise to say that they have not been a problem. They have rarely, if ever, touched him. Having puzzled over my father's apparent indifference to my existence my entire life, this observation by Mr. Reeves that my father did, does not need people felt like this cherished gift of bittersweet validation. These words reach off the page as if to hug me and say, it's not personal, Rachel. It's not just you that he doesn't need. It's all people. <laughs> my mother was 28 years old and single when she met my father, which made her a straight up lady fossil. <laughs> She says there was only one other woman in the office uh, who wasn't married, uh, but she was divorced, which my mother said was much better because at least someone had chosen her. <laughs> Richard Rees writes, Anne Oppenheimer was the Budget Bureau's India and Pakistan specialist during Hamilton's White House years, and they were married in 1966 after his divorce from his first wife. 
And Hamilton lives in Bethesda, Maryland with their three children. He has five altogether. And he visits, he said, whenever I can put eight or nine hours together on a Sunday, usually once a month. To me, that meant that every now and then, out of the blue, our doorbell would ring and I'd fly down the stairs where I could see my father standing on our porch through the long skinny windows next to the front door. And I knew that meant that he'd be taking us out to Hamburger Hamlet for dinner. And I'd be excited about it because during that dinner, he'd be funny and nice and interested in me. He'd be a really good dad for 90 minutes. And then he'd drop us off and we wouldn't see him again for a very long time until the next time he showed up unannounced. Sometimes there were years between his visits after he moved to California. It was and is so very strange. Mr. Reeves agrees. It's a tough thing to write that a man has no friends. <laughs> but I asked him who his closest friends were, and they were the ones who told me he has no close friends. <laughs> Most Sundays, he is at Gracie Mansion with a half dozen of the men nearest Mayor Lindsay. Hamilton, incidentally, is the only one of that group who says Mr. Mayor in private. The rest use John. If there is no mansion meeting, Hamilton is likely to be watching sports on television, sometimes two televisions and a radio at the same time. He is a psychopathic fan who has driven hundreds of miles through a night to watch the Cubs play and he likes football better than oh. baseball. <laughs> In my late 30s, having done enough therapy to give up my mostly unconscious childhood fantasy that if I was just sweet enough and exceptional enough, I could make my father finally want to be my father. I was able to ask him via email some of the questions I'd been hold, uh, wondering about for years, but not asking. In response to my questions about his almost complete absence from my childhood, he sent me an elegant spreadsheet, <laughs> meticulously cataloging his various work responsibilities through the 1970s, demonstrating how the timing was simply not conducive to visiting me in Washington, D.C. from California, where he'd moved to be with his third wife after his stint in New York City politics were over. Looking at his comprehensive list of professional commitments and his detailed notes about the limited availability of overnight flights from LAX to National Airport, his points made perfect sense. My father skillfully made the rational and well-thought-out case that while he would have liked to have been a father to me, it just not, did not work out with his schedule. Being my dad was just not convenient. I used to spend a lot of time thinking about how unforgivable it all was and is my father's neglect. How could he do that? Who does that? Who shamefully takes a pass on parenting their children? Shamelessly takes a pass on parenting their children. Thanks to Mr. Rees, I understand that part a little better. He says, I'm exaggerating to make a point, said someone who worked with Hamilton and, uh, in Washington. But Ed is so rational that if you could make a strong economic case for slavery, he would consider it. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> These days, I find myself watchful for his particular pathologies. 
tracking how much of him is in me? What efforts am I not making on behalf of the people I love because they're inconvenient? Am I capable of doing what my dad did, abandoning my kids in, in pursuit of my own interests? I don't know. I don't have kids. <laughs> and do I not have kids because somewhere deep down I fear that when push comes to shove, I might have not have it in me to put their needs ahead of mine the same way my father couldn't? I imagine that's part of it. I also know that unlike my father, the people in my life have always been what is most important to me, way more important than my work. For my dad, it was different. Richard Reeves says, Ed is not ambitious in the sense that he plots his moves, said someone who knows him well, but he does have a talent for being visibly bright. He doesn't waste a drop, and he always comes across to other men as the smartest man they've ever met. Part of it is smug confidence. He sounds so right and almost always is. Being a good dad to me would not necessarily make him look smart, maybe kind, maybe warm, maybe decent, but not smart. And if that's what he was after, then his absence makes a little bit of sense, I suppose. And thankfully, despite having inherited his 2020 vision and his strong teeth, I know deep down that I did not inherit my father's capacity to abandon. To the contrary, I think that my father's shortcomings have contributed to me being vigilant about loving well, even when it's inconvenient to do so. Thank you. See, told you she was great. Thank you, Rachel Hamilton. Okay, we're going to wrap it up with a piece from a long-running magnet show called Laurie Stanton's Sound Diet. About four times a year, Melanie Hoops has been writing and producing what for the audience is a live recording of a radio variety show with stories, scenes, musical guests, and other surprises. Melanie plays the host, Lori Stanton. And here in this piece, as in every episode, Lori is going to tap into her archive of over 400 phone calls she's secretly recorded since she was in seventh grade. This one is a call from Phil the following morning after their first date. Everything clicked, and they will never see each other again. Enjoy. Hi, I thought you'd call. How are you? Good morning, how are you? Good morning, I'm okay. I feel really stuffy, though. I don't know if, um, I guess, I mean, I know we were out late, but uh, I just, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, just my whole head is kind of echoey, but but how are you? What's happening? Nothing, I'm good, I'm really good. I have my, I mean, I don't mean to, Go on and on about it, but I had a really great time. Last it was night. really, it was really fun. It was. That <laughs> was hilarious. What's going on? So, nothing. No, I just. Um, uh, I don't know. I woke up feeling kind of weird. Um, I've been doing a lot of uh, thinking. I guess I kind of woke up today, like um, feeling like um, I don't fight. I don't know. I can't. It's like I don't think necessarily that maybe. That I that I can really um, do that again, if that if that makes sense. What? Um, no, just that I don't think that I I myself I don't think that I can uh, um, go out with you anymore. I don't. Uh, I feel like you're kidding. I feel like you're joking. <laughs> no, it totally makes sense. I, I mean, I, um, uh, no, I'm not. I had a great time. It's just, it is just, there's a lot about my life that um, we didn't get into last night, and in some ways the conversation didn't lend to it, itself to it, you know, but there's just, um, there's just, uh, 
but there's just a lot of things about. Do you do you do that a lot? Do you have like really great nights and then you just no. don't want to have them again? Great. Like no, never, <laughs> never. I I told you last night I hadn't been out with anybody in years, you know. Um, and I I just uh, I uh. Where are you? Sorry. Home. Home. So. I just like I was saying, like, I don't go out. I don't never go out on dates, really, you know, for a lot of reasons. And, and um, so it was part of why I was so nervous. But then, um, you know, we just have so much in common. It was so fun. And I, and I just, um, I just woke up today feeling like I can't, I can't. Uh, hi. For the bun. Who is that? Is that a yogurt treat for the bun? I get it. I get it. For for the bunny? I get it. For the bunny. Paul? So, um, yeah. I, I get it. Bunny. I get it. But, um, I get it. I'm really sorry. Yeah, you know, all I can think of to say is just don't do it to anyone else because it doesn't feel good. No, no, no. I, don't, I really don't want this to be the kind of thing where I've done something wrong and you're mad at me. Like, I, I really want to see that real that doesn't feel That doesn't feel right with me. I mean, I, I really don't want to get an argument. I'm not anyway. making an argument. I'm just saying I can, I kind of get the idea of what you're saying. You've got a family, and you didn't even talk about that last night. You have a few in a room. Really, no offense, no offense at all, but you didn't really say so. What about you? What do you do? What do you, what do you do with? You know what I mean? What? Careful, I... sweetie, sweetie, careful, careful. <laughs> she just has this little stroll, little stroll I, don't I don't care. I don't care. It's not, it's so... It's... Oh, that's nice. That's, I mean, it's a toddler. I mean, you know, it's not her fault. Um... I am speechless at this one. This is one that I will remember. I will remember you, Paul. I, I wish you, you luck. I really felt no. like we had a great night. I think we did. I think we did. I think I can put that in a box and shellac it and put it under my bed. But I think, uh, I think I, I've learned that I'm capable of having a good time. Yes, you've taught me I'm capable of having a good time for one night. Thank you. Thank you. Well, listen, I, I mean, you sound pretty upset. I'm really, um, I'm really sorry if that's the case. I really enjoyed could you imagine? Really could you imagine why I would be upset? Did you think when you were calling, you were like, oh, yeah, oh, I got to take the laundry downstairs. I got to pick up, uh, you know, someone after school. And then, oh, yeah, I got to tell Lori that I can't see her. I mean, did you, did you for a second think that I, I you... I didn't put it on like a to-do list. Like, I... I uh... Could you, did you even think about getting some child care before you made the fucking call? <laughs> Sorry, that's a luxury we can't. God. Well, look, I mean, I really, I mean, now that we're talking again, and get, like, I mean, I still feel such a connection, you know, so I don't, I mean, I hope it doesn't Yuck. mean like we nope. never. Nope, I'll, I'll talk to you, uh, I, I, never, I don't think. Thank you, God, for the call. What? Come maybe on. I'll, Come on. I'll call you late. I mean, no. maybe, nope. I mean. Nope, No, goodbye. You know, we throw an Oscar party every year. Goodbye. Maybe you can come by. Nope. Goodbye. I'm hanging up right Sorry. now. Bye. Right. Goodbye. That was Ethan Sandler as Phil. Ethan is a funny, brilliant, super talented actor and improviser living in L.A. where he is also a writer of television. Lori was played by Melanie Hoops, the creator of Sound Diet and My Wife. Did you enjoy the show? I hope so. And I hope to bring a few more of them over the summer while Lewis takes a break. 
This podcast was sponsored by the Magnet Training Center and Rehearsal Space. New improv, musical improv, sketch writing, storytelling, and auditioning classes are being posted all the time at magnettheater.com, where you can also book a rehearsal space using the online tool or just call the training center office. Thank you, Lewis, for letting me do this. And thank you again to Peter Gross, Hannah Chase, Christian Palak, J.P. Manu, Melanie Hoops, Ethan Sandler, and everyone listening right now. Thank you. Bye, friends. Bye. You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.